Hi, Shaleen. It's Danielle from Saskatchewan, Canada. I want to thank you for your recent podcast on overcoming obstacles. I recently started an MLM company and feel like I'm hitting obstacle after obstacle, but your podcast reminded me to keep my eyes on my goal and to keep moving forward. So thank you so much. Just what I needed to hear today. Hey there. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Shaleen Show. Today, we're talking about the effects of birth control. Now, fellas, you might want to listen in on this one, too, because we're going to talk about how it changes the female brain, how it changes our personalities, and what alternatives there are. Welcome to The Shalene Show. Shalene is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. Today, my guest is Dr. Sarah Hill. She's a research psychologist who studies women's psychology and health using theoretical tools available from the evolutionary sciences. But recently, she has turned her expertise to learning more about what it is we don't know about the impacts of birth control and the impact specifically it has on our brain. Now, this is really interesting because Dr. Sarah's own journey led her to dig deeper into this research, finding that she herself became more alive, like more like herself after she got off birth control. And because she is a psychologist by training, she wanted to understand what do we know about the effects it has on our brains? And sadly, what she discovered is that we don't have a lot of research. In today's episode, you will learn what you need to know, what doctors are perhaps not telling you, and how you can make an informed decision. To be clear, this is not a discussion that's anti-birth control. This is not a political statement. This topic I bring to you because I want you to be able to make informed decisions. And while you're at it, pick up Dr. Sarah's new book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on The Shaleen Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. That's awesome. I am really curious about what type of response you've been getting, specifically because this topic can be something that is often politically charged. You know, we're talking about women's reproductive rights, really, and making informed decisions about her body and making informed decisions. So I'm just curious before we get into some of your research, which is phenomenal. I'm curious if you've had pushback from one side or the other because this is often politically charged. Right. This is a very much a politically charged issue. And we are still living in a day and age where there are, you know, people whom are in very powerful leadership positions in our country who, you know, aren't very respectful of women's rights and women's rights to choose what to do with their bodies, choose when they're going to be having children and how mm-hmm. to regulate their fertility. And, you know, thus far, I have to say that I have been really overwhelmingly um, supported by women. And, you know, I think that on both sides, of, on both sides, because, Great. you know, my book isn't anti birth control. It's absolutely not, you know, a malignment, you know, I don't malign the pill or and I don't tell women not to take it. You know, I explain that, you know, in my own life, the birth control pill has been an absolutely amazing force. And it, you know, if I had to make the decision again, knowing all the information that I know now, for certain periods of my life, I would still probably make the decision to be on it because it is, you know, very effective and it's easy to use and it's safe. It's just that I would be making the decision knowing what trade-offs I was making. And really that's what this, yeah. And that's what this book is about. It's about um, giving women 
the information that they need to make informed decisions and also to better strategize their birth control strategy in a way that's going to allow them to sort of maximize their life and like who they want to be. And so it's really just about starting conversations about something that you know, women have really been talking about for a very long time when it comes to their birth control pills, and that is how it makes them feel. Your position on birth control is very similar to my position on food and diet, which is I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I do want to be an advocate for the woman who needs to understand she should be making those decisions as opposed to blindly asking some expert, am I allowed to eat this or not? Is this healthy or not? You know, right. when some people refer to it as intuitive eating. I like to call it informed eating. And I think what we're talking about today is a process by which women need to, again, like take control, take ownership mm-hmm. and become informed. Yeah. No, if you don't know what the pill is doing to the brain, right, then you are at the mercy of your doctor to be telling you what to do with your body. We need to be in a position where we are active, informed participants in discussions with our doctor about are we going to be on the birth control pill or not? And if so, which one are we going to be on? And sort of educating ourselves about what we know about the different types of pills out there, what the pill does to the brain. And, you know, and also like some of the questions that we don't know and allowing women to sort of take all of the information, have it, and then make the best decision for themselves. They need experts like yourself to basically lead the way and let us know what we perhaps haven't been told. So let's start there, Dr. Sarah, if we can. What are some of the perhaps more surprising things that women need to know birth control can do to their brain, their body, their stress response, their mood, their personality? Right. There's a lot. You know, our hormones, and especially our sex hormones, they play a really important role in the sort of signaling machinery that our brain uses to create the experiences of being who we are. And, you know, we know from decades of research that women's sex hormones influence everything from their appetite to who they are attracted to as a romantic partner, to the nature of their stress response, to the nature of their immune response. And I could go on and on and on. It really shouldn't have been as surprising to all of us as it is that when you take the birth control pill, which of course changes what a woman's profile of sex hormones looks like, that it's going to change what her brain is doing. And so it's going to like change the way that she thinks and feels and experiences the world. And some of the really surprising ways that, you know, I've learned that the pill can influence women's behavior is, for example, with mate choice. You know, when meaning we who read you're our, attracted to? Yeah, meaning mm-hmm. who you're attracted to and maybe even like who you choose as a partner. So there's been research now for decades showing that women's sex hormones influence their ability to discriminate between men. And just meaning that at times in the menstrual cycle when estrogen, the hormone estrogen is relatively high, that women are like, they're better able to discriminate between sort of like higher quality kind of sexy men and then (laughs) less sexy men. The creator of that study, who defined what a more attractive, sexier man is? Because I think, you know, most of us would have a differing definition. Right. No, and there's absolutely idiosyncrasies when it comes to partner choice. No doubt about it. Thank goodness. Right. Or else we'd all be going after the same guy. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. You know, we'd we'd like everybody be fighting. I love it. Yeah. Wars in the streets. But, you know, there are some things that there's agreement on. And, you know, we know that 
women, for example, tend to like men who have markers associated with the hormone testosterone. So we tend to like guys with deeper voices and Mm -hmm. who are sort of Mm -hmm. charismatic and have swagger and have, you know, slightly more masculine faces and have broad shoulders and narrow hips. And, you know, there's a lot of these little markers that are associated with testosterone that women sort of cue into, particularly during points in their cycle when estrogen is relatively high. And there's some actually cool research in neuroscience showing that, you know, our brains are actually sort of more sensitive to our environment when estrogen is high. It's like we're better able to sort of pick up on fine-tuned differences, you know, between individual men at this time, visually and using like scent. They've done studies looking at men's scents. And when estrogen is high, women are sort of more They can pick up on subtle differences that women can't pick up on the same women when estrogen Mm. is. Yeah, it's really interesting research. And so, you know, this is pretty provocative in the context of the pill because, you know, when you take the birth control pill, it keeps your own levels of estrogen really low. Mm -hmm. And the estrogens that are in the pill are overwhelmed by the amount of the other artificial hormone in the pill, which is progesterone or the artificial progesterone is called a progestin. Yes. And so women, the pill are kept in this constant state of progestin dominance. And yeah. so they never experience like this sort of estrogen dominant state. You know, researchers were sort of interested, like, you know, gosh, given that there's a lot of research indicating that estrogen predicts this preference for sort of testosterone markers, wouldn't it be interesting to see whether women who are on the birth control pill might actually desire and choose as partners men who are a little bit more feminine. And so they've done research looking at the types of partners that are chosen by women who are either on or off of the birth control pill. And lo and behold, the women who are on the pill seem to be choosing men whose faces are somewhat less masculine than the faces of the partners chosen by the naturally cycling women. I find that very interesting. But also not detrimental, not necessarily, right? Like, so I'm with a guy who's a little bit more, you know, a girly man, if you will. (laughs) I'll probably get hate mail for that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's certainly not going to affect my longevity, I don't think. But what types of things do we need to know in terms of our health? What are some of the risk factors we need to consider? You know, most of the research that I really sort of dive in the book is a lot about what goes on in the brain. And Mm so like, if we want to talk about health, I can talk about some of the risks that come with some of the changes that we see with the pill and the stress response. Are we talking about just oral contraception or does this also include things like the NuvaRing or IUDs or a patch, a hormone patch? Are all of these in the same category? Yes, yes. So the thing about putting hormones into your body is when hormones communicate, they don't like travel across a very specific pathway like neurotransmitters do in the brain. Instead, the way that they work is they get released into the bloodstream. And once they're there, they influence 
everything. Like mm. everywhere that blood goes, the hormones go. And so they influence your body from the, you know, tips of your toes to the top of your head. You know, no matter where you put the hormonal contraceptive, whether it's a Nuva ring or an IUD with hormones or a patch, the hormones all end up in the same place. And the place is everywhere. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's the place. Um, every cell in the body that has receptors for the hormones picks them up. And so they all work the same way, no matter where they're located in the body. Are there bioidentical hormones that provide a form of contraception, or is it just synthetic? You know, that's a really interesting question, and it's not one that I'm like in a really wonderful position to answer because I don't have a good I don't have a good answer, but I will mm. tell you this. And that is that, you know, we know that the pill works by sort of tricking women's bodies into thinking that they're in the second half of their menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And this is a point in the cycle where progesterone is dominant relative to estrogen. And that sends a signal to the brain that it doesn't need to do the things that it does in order to kickstart an egg to begin to mature and doing all of these things that can lead to pregnancy, it would seem reasonable to me that if you were able to create a sort of progesterone dominant state using bioidenticals, that given the way that the whole egg release goes on, that it would have the same effect. But I mean, but I mean, sort of theoretically speaking, it seems, you know, given how the pill works and how the body works and how hormones work, Mm -hmm. that that you might be able to create such a thing. But I am basing that just, you know, speculation and speculation can get you pregnant. Yes, it can. (laughs) But I'm so glad we're having this conversation. As I always say, when you know better, you do better. Let's see from my birth of my daughter, which was 19 years ago, from her birth until she was 17, I believe, I was on a continuous bout of birth control, meaning I was doing exercise videos at the time. I had an OBGYN who, you know, I complained about the fact that I couldn't predict, you know, how I was going to feel and how it really would impact the way I was doing videos, et cetera. And it was just an inconvenience. It was inconvenient, which is a horrible thing to think about your own reproductive health. But that's <laughs> what I was thinking. And he'd suggested that I just take it continuous without ever taking that break, right? Like the week off of your placebos or eventually I did the Nuva ring. And so I went that many years without having a period. Maybe once a year I would, you know, give myself a break just to see like, okay, am I still getting my period? And then sometimes I just didn't because I was on it for so long. And I shudder to think about what happens to your body when you're working against it in that way. I mean, that's just such an unnatural state to be in, to be in this constant state of low estrogen and progestin dominance or progesterone dominance. I can't imagine what that was doing. But let's talk about what happens in a woman's brain in terms of her stress response, and perhaps even anxiety and depression? What can you tell us? Right? Yeah. So these are the two big things that are, you know, primarily going to be involved in health related outcomes. And the first, you know, is this stress response piece. And what the research finds is that women who are on the birth control pill, they don't have this big increase in the stress hormone cortisol in response to stress the same way that other sort of normal, healthy, functioning adults do. So normally when people are feeling stressed out, so, and we've all been there, you know, you're stuck in traffic or you're giving a presentation or doing a podcast, 
And, um, <laughs> and you get this like big surge in stress hormones, including the stress hormone cortisol. And we've all heard of cortisol, and it kind of gets a bad rap. People, you know, tend to think that it's evil, because, you know, it's associated with stress. But I mean, the thing that we need to remember about stress hormones is that stress hormones don't cause stress, right? Life causes stress stress hormones actually help us cope with stress. And cortisol is included in this group. And so, you know, normally, when we're stressed out, we get the surge in cortisol, and it does things like increases our attention to our environment, it helps us remember things, it sort of gets our immune system ready in case of injury. And it also helps to shut down the immune response to keep it from sort of over taking the body and putting the body in a pro-inflammatory state. Hmm. It does all kinds of things that are helpful for us in the context of stress. And women who are on the pill don't get this cortisol increase in response to stress. So other researchers have begun to look into why this is. And this is a really important question because normally, you know, we don't see this sort of thing go on unless somebody has a really chronically active stress response. So normally, like you don't see somebody shut their stress response down, unless they've been a victim of trauma. They have like we see this sort of a pattern in people who have PTSD, people who've been abused in childhood, and women who are on the birth control pill, Mm. they all share this in common, in having this like lack of cortisol response to stress. And so other researchers have looked at you know, is it possible that women who are on the pill might actually be shutting their own stress responses down? Like might their body be shutting off the stress response, because the pill is doing something that basically puts them in a state of like chronic panic, essentially, in terms of their hormones. And there's been research now that has followed up on this that suggests that this is exactly what's going on. And that women have a number of different biological markers going on in their body that are consistent with their bodies being overwhelmed by cortisol, and that their body is actually shutting their own stress responses down. And this is really important, because it is not good for mental health. So lacking this dynamic change in cortisol, just like we see in people who have PTSD, for example, you know, it's linked with mental health problems. Because when you don't have stress hormones, in response to stress, you're less able to cope. Um, And yeah, and, and not being able to cope with stress, of course, is it causes anxiety. And when anxiety becomes unmanageable, we become depressed, because we feel like we have no ability to actually cope. And so that's like one piece, but there's more. (laughs) It also is linked with shrinkage to your hippocampus. Um, And yeah, and your hippocampus is a part of your brain that plays an important role in learning and memory. And it's, you know, having a shrunken hippocampus is something that we tend to see in neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's disease, for example. Yeah, yeah. And this is just brand new research that's been done now in these two large samples of women where they did brain scans and looked at whether or not these women were experiencing hippocampal shrinkage, which they began to explore because that's what you tend to see in people with PTSD and people who've been through trauma. Because the reason that you get shrinkage in the hippocampus is that this is an area of the brain that is very sensitive to cortisol signaling, mm-hmm. and, and it can actually kill the brain cells there if it gets too much going on there. And so these researchers, given what 
others had been finding with the cortisol response in pill takers. They looked at pill taking women's brains and then compared them to samples of non pill takers and they found evidence of hippocampal shrinkage in the pill taking group. And this isn't, you know, something that could potentially be associated with some of those feelings of brain fog that you hear women talking about. Or even dementia and Alzheimer's. I'm sure you found this to be as frustrating as I did when I was doing the research for my book. Mm -hmm. I could find so few studies that were specifically looking at women. And not that my book was written just for women, but it's hard to give a woman an indication of how this is going to impact her health you know, let's just talk diet for a moment, how that's going to impact her hormones and her health when most of the research that I could find only used male participants. Oh, I know. Like, this is the dirty little secret of research science. And I think that it's like so important that people like you who have this like really amazing platform where you're able to reach so many people um, that, that we talk about this because it's something that a lot of people don't realize is going on. And that is that science for a very long time, and this practice continues, even though things have gotten a little bit better, is overwhelmingly focused on male participants. And the reason for this is because of women. Yes, please. I'm dying to know what is the reason. It's a complicated issue. And the reason for it is like the sort of short answer, if mm-hmm. I can give one. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a research scientist. We don't have short answers. <laughs> <laughs> I love we're it. Like, we're the worst. We are the absolute worst. So science is incredibly competitive. So that's, you know, the first thing that you need to know. And that is that getting your papers published and getting your research funded is something that requires that you do as much research as possible as quickly as possible. And Mm. if you don't do this, if you don't publish things really fast, you can lose funding, which can get you fired and make you have to fire everybody in your lab. And anyway, it's, it's incredibly competitive and, and people don't appreciate how competitive science is. Well, girl, you got an army of women right now who would fund your Kickstarter campaign for whatever <laughs> research. I mean, it's crazy to me to think about that, but we just have to band together. And I'm not saying that to be a comedian. I, I mean that. Like, right. No, no, absolutely. And so, so science is competitive and studying women takes longer and is more expensive than studying men. And this isn't just true for humans. This is true for animal research, too. And the reason for this is that women's cyclically changing sex hormones have to be accounted for in research in order to show that there's a cause and effect relationship between blah and blah, so A and B. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that we have to have at least three times as many females as males in any study, because we have to have females during the menstrual phase, the follicular, you know, phase, and the luteal phase, right? Whereas with males, you just bring in males at any time and study them. And so females... We're too complicated. We're complicated. And so you have this really competitive science, Mm -hmm. right? And you have scientists who are trying to get things done as absolutely as quickly as possible so they don't lose their funding and lose their jobs. So what types of things do they study? They study things that can be studied only in males. Easily controlled. And easily controlled. And because it allows them to do research three times as quickly. And it's not just that you have to run three times as many participants, but like, you know, and and so I study humans. And so for us, when we're accounting for cycle phase, we have women call us when they get their period Mm -hmm. and then we schedule them accordingly. So it's like, okay, you know, we want you to come in 
during estrogen dominance. We're going to have you come in, you know, nine days after you start your period. If we want to have you during progesterone dominance, we schedule you 20 days later. But I mean, it's really complicated trying to get, you know what I mean, to get this type of scheduling done. For sure. Um, And that's with humans, like with mice or rats. They can't tell you when they start their <laughs> period because they, you know, they don't know, right? And so they have to do these vaginal swabs and then they've got to test the levels of hormones. And so what this means is that when you have things, something that people might not appreciate is that preclinical research, like animal research, is the absolute bedrock foundation of everything that we know about everything. So this includes nutrition, which is like a pet yep. interest of mine. I know you love it. Like that's like what you're so about, which is why I love you so much. I'm like huge into nutrition, like everything we know about nutrition, everything we know about things like inflammation, everything that we know about Alzheimer's disease, we mm-hmm. it all starts with animals, male animals. Great. So like, for example, Alzheimer's disease, which is something that affects overwhelmingly more women than men. If you look at the neuroscience literature, the preclinical research trying to understand the mechanisms that contribute to Alzheimer's disease, about 90% of that is research that's been done on only male mice. Only males. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is ridiculous. It's potentially misleading, I should say. Well, well, no, I think that it is. Because here's the thing, you know, it's like how many things would work in females only that were never even tested because they didn't work in males? Right. I mean, there's like absolutely no doubt in my mind. We're just not the same. No, and there's no doubt in my mind that there aren't major medical discoveries that have totally been overlooked that would help women's health because they didn't work in males. Because males are tested first, and if it doesn't work in males, it never even gets to the females. Mm. And it's crazy. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. And this is also why issues like the birth control pill and like women's sex hormones tend to be understudied. And, you know, because it's like nobody wants to steer into women's issues when they know that doing so is going to make their research be slower and more expensive than other, you know, research topics. And so it's something that researchers sort of back mm-hmm. away from a little mm-hmm, bit. And, mm-hmm. um, and so we need to change how science is done. So that way, um, what people are getting rewarded for isn't the sheer volume of research, but rather the, uh, you know, the, the quality of the research that they're doing with yeah. research. Hey there, we'll get right back to the show. But I have a quick question for you. Are you trying to lose weight or just be healthy? or just feel more confident and happy? Well, in order to do that, you need a new way. You see, the problem is losing weight, it's hard, and keeping it off feels almost impossible. At the 131 Method, we have helped over 50,000 people find a new way, a much better way. Okay, so here's how this works with our online program. It's three simple steps. You go to 131method.com, you start it, you slay it, and you own it. Step one is to start it. You do that by identifying what it is you want to work on. What is your priority? Is it weight loss? Is it gut health? Then you pick a start date, you log in and go. Step two, you slay it. What does that mean? It means you get your meal plans, you select from hundreds of delicious, simple recipes all online, including cooking tutorials, and then we'll help you change up the way you eat every four weeks. That is going to boost your metabolism and it's called diet phasing. We'll help you personalize the process because hello, one size fits all diets do not work, they never have, and they never will. We all need our own individualized approach and our registered dietitians are going to help you do that so that this is something that you can do for life. And then step three, you own it. 
No more wasting time with fad diets or wondering if you're doing something right. It's time for you to take control of your health, to heal your relationship with food and your body. And we want to help you lose the weight and keep it off. You deserve to look and feel freaking amazing. So do yourself a favor. Go to 131method.com and let's do this. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for prioritizing your health. Now back to the show. You know, one of the things I hear from my audience regularly is that they were either put on birth control at a really young age or they have a daughter who it's been suggested that they do birth control or use birth control to control things like acne, an irregular period, to prevent ovarian cysts or to deal with endometriosis. It seems like we've just been using it as a cure-all. Is there any research to show that these things you're actually curing anything or is it just masking? And what would you say to a mother or a young woman who, whose OBGYN is suggesting that they use birth control to solve one of these other dilemmas? This is such an important issue. And, and so I have a 12-year-old daughter right now. And so these are issues that you know I'm going to be confronting with. And I, I think about them constantly, of course, because I want her to do what's going to be you know, the best for her. And yeah, so these are really important mm-hmm. issues. And I, I do think that you're right. Absolutely. I think that young girls are oftentimes given, and, and even young women and, and women, you know, mm-hmm. were offered the birth control pill as a means of sort of taking care of skin problems or taking care of, you know, cycle irregularities and that yeah. sort of thing. And taking it does, you know, it does mask, right, the issue, right? If there's an underlying issue that is responsible for unclear skin, or there's an underlying issue that's associated with irregular cycles, it's not fixing the problem. It's just managing the problem. It's like taking a Tylenol, you know, for an infection, right? It's not going to solve the infection. It'll just make it hurt less. Where I think that we need to maybe exercise some care with the pill. And again, just to make my position very clear, like I think that this is a very woman specific issue. And I would never try to prescribe somebody like what they should be doing. But um, just in terms of things that they should be considering, especially for girls who are 19 and younger, your brain is still in a time of pretty rapid development during that time, up until you're about, you know, 20 or so. I mean, the brain continues to develop after that. But it's like really, up until you're about 19 or so your brain is, it's developing pretty quickly. And we don't yet know what the effect of birth control pill usage is during this time of development. And this is something that I think that we should consider when we're weighing sort of the costs and benefits Mm -hmm. associated with giving these young girls the birth control pill for Mm -hmm. reasons other than pregnancy prevention. I'm a huge advocate of preventing teen pregnancies. It's like there's nothing that will throw a spanner in the works more quickly of a person's life in terms of their ability to be financially independent, their ability to meet their educational and career goals than getting pregnant at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but even in the case, you know, there are other ways you can protect yourself from pregnancy. But when it comes to things like, you know, clear skin and irregular periods and that sort of thing, to give these young girls whose brains are still developing the birth control pill, we know absolutely nothing about whether or not the pill influences brain development. I just think that we need to be a little bit cautious on this. How often has a woman gone into or a young woman gone into meet with her OBGYN and explain that she's having horrible periods or that she's having horrible acne or that she is experiencing 
horrible symptoms of PMS. When and has it ever happened? I'm sure there are exceptions. But the norm is not to say, well, let's talk about how you're eating. Let's take a look at your nutrition and let's see if we can't solve this through natural means, because we know that what we're eating and how we're living and how much sleep we're getting and the stress that we're exposed to and everything in our environment has mm-hmm. a major role or major impact on our hormones. But mm-hmm. instead, we're so quick to say, here's a pill. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, it, that's like the way we are as a society right now. And it's unfortunate. Thankfully, you know, there are a growing number of these doctors that take sort of the full range and sort of like look at people's lifestyles and other things as a means. And we have to applaud them. Thank goodness. Yes. yes. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've found someone, share them with your friends and family. Like we want these folks to to help others. And the only way we can do that is by, you know, basically word of mouth, telling your girlfriend and your mother and your father that you found a a wonderful integrative healthcare professional, someone who really takes a look at the whole person. Yeah. So integrative healthcare, not only because, you know, we also see this in like the field of mental health. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of, you know, mental health practitioners out there who don't ask people about things like their diet and their, you know, how they're sleeping. And it's like, and that's just nuts. I mean, there's so much research linking inflammatory activity to mood and a lot of our diet and is pro-inflammatory. And a lot of the way that we manage our stress or don't manage our stress is pro-inflammatory. And there's so many things in our environment that, yeah, influence inflammatory activity, influence our hormone levels. Like you were saying, there's, you know, these endocrine Mm -hmm. disrupting compounds, the foods that we're eating with the different estrogens in them. Yeah. And doctors want to just like give everybody a really quick fix on all of that. And even sometimes with these, you know, really um, these young girls whose brains are still in a process of development to just like sort of, you know, without the body of research telling us one way or the other what the birth control pill might be doing to brain development. Mm. I don't think that it's wise. I think that we need to really take some time to think about what are what are some alternative options to a young girl to help regulate some of these types of issues. You know, there's been a lot of research looking at the ways that the pill influences mental health. And when you look at these adolescent girls, so girls who are 19 and younger, in addition to the fact that we don't know whether the pill is influencing sort of the developmental process the way that their brain is being organized, there's a lot of research indicating that these girls are the ones who are overwhelmingly negatively affected by the bad sort of mental health outcomes that that can be associated with the pill. So anxiety and depression, and even an increase in uh, suicide risk, those risks are much greater in these young women than they are in older women. And so this tells me that there's something, you know, during this developmental process that's going on in the brain that is really sensitive to what's going on with these artificial sex hormones, and that we should really proceed with care, especially, you know, when we're dealing with pill prescriptions in younger women for things other than pregnancy prevention. Before we started today, I polled my audience and asked what questions they would want to ask you. The overwhelming majority of the women who responded raised concerns about having been on the pill for a long period of time and wondering what effects it has on their fertility Yeah. So, you know, this is, again, going to be something that we can all be really frustrated by. And as women, I encourage 
everybody to start conversations with your friends and with your doctors and, you know, writing to the National Institutes of Health because they're the ones who fund research. There is not a lot of research looking at the effects of long-term pill use on almost anything. Really? So statistically speaking, in the research that you've looked at, Mm -hmm. do you see that it is more common for women who've been on birth control or some form of hormonal conception? Do you see an increase in the amount of infertility? You know, as a scientist, of course, I'm full of caveats and hand waving where I'm like, well, we need to be careful, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, about concluding this and that. I mean, I have heard women who've told me, you know, their stories. So these are anecdotal stories telling me that they were on the pill for a long time. And now they have these issues with infertility. And there's also a ton of women who've had absolutely no issue with it. And so I'd really want to see what the data look like. Mm. Um, I will say one thing that like we know for absolute certain, and this is going to be one of those things where you're going to be like, Sarah, you just said something that's (laughs) totally meaningless. But I'm going to say it anyway. And that (laughs) is, you know, in some ways, the pill is, we do know that it is linked with higher risk of infertility, just in that women are having children later now than they ever have before in their lives. And it's because we're allowed the pill in particular, um, has really allowed women to delay childbearing until they feel like they're ready for it. Mm-hmm. And fertility is a really cruel and uncaring force. And it sucks. And it's like the most anti-feminist, like ageist thing out there. But mm-hmm. women's fertility peaks in their early 20s. And it begins to decline in their late 20s. And it sort of falls off a cliff precipitously after women are 35. And you know, there are things that women can do like freeze their eggs and do some of these other amazing Mm -hmm. things that technology is allowing us to do. But when we postpone childbearing, it does come with a greater risk of infertility. Mm -hmm. And so I think that as we continue to sort of push the envelope of women's fertility by delaying childbearing, that we're going to see, you know, a greater number of women who are struggling with infertility, um, in part for this reason. I think that we, because we don't feel like we're grownups until we're in our 30s, it just seems so ridiculous that our body, you know, (laughs) wants to get pregnant when we're 15. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that I know for certain, but in terms of like, whether or not the, you know, the pill is doing something sort of long term in terms of hormone dysregulation and that contributing to infertility. I don't know of any research that has looked at that issue. And any research that I have heard of um, has found that there's no differences for women. But again, Mm. the the research is really just beginning. Like we are just, yeah, it's lacking. I mean, we're just getting started. And so women need to really start pushing for the issues that are important to them. And and there's nothing more important than this. I mean, we should be able to safely and effectively regulate our fertility and know what we're getting into. Absolutely. Mm. Should women cycle off of birth control from time to time? And if so, is do we have any research with that regard? Or do you have any suggestions? Yeah, I do have suggestions. There's not a whole lot of research like looking at what happens, you know, if you go on and off of it, we know that it's safe. So if you, you know, go on the pill, and then you're out of a relationship, and you go off of it, and then you go back on it, that that's going to be a safe thing to do. That's not going to be anything that's going to cause any sort of major upheaval in the body. And to be honest with you, like, I think that that's not a bad idea. 
for women, you know, especially mm-hmm. they can use what I talk about in the book, this is your brain on birth control, and look at the different areas of their lives in which it looks like the pill might have some influence in the types of decisions that we're making and how we feel and how we're thinking. And then we can really use that information to try to strategize our birth control use and sort of use it during times in our life where it really makes sense. And then not use it during times in our lives where we might want our own naturally cycling hormones to be sort of at the helm of our decision making. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that it can be smart and strategic to sort of go on and off the birth control pill as it makes sense, given where you are in your life and like what your goals are. And Mm -hmm. and I hope that my book, and I think that my book actually does a really nice job of sort of outlining, you're giving some ideas about when it might be a good idea to do that and and Mm -hmm. tips that women can use um, to really sort of strategize their birth control strategy. What can you tell us about the difficulty many women experience once they come off of birth control? in terms of like hormones that feel like they're out of whack and not being able to resume their period. Right. Yeah. No, that's like a real issue. I actually had that exact issue when I went off the pill after having my second child. I was on the pill for a while and then I went off of it. I didn't get my period back for almost a year. Mm. And, And I went to my doctor and of course, what did he tell me? He said, if you want your period go back on the pill. <laughs> you know, it's like, the problem isn't that I want my period. Like, I don't miss my period. Like, that's not the issue. Like, I want to know what the problem is. Yes. Like, why am I not having a period? We don't have an answer, but here's another pill to take. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, that really frustrated me. It was, But of course, you know, there was no answers. And so I did what a lot of women did, right? I was like reading up on bioidenticals and like trying that. And, you know, I experimented on myself with a number of different things. And eventually it came back. I don't know if it was because of any of the things that I was doing or not. Mm-hmm. Is there research that has looked at the loss of a period after coming off of birth control? So this sort of falls outside my area of expertise, just because, you know, generally what I'm looking at is the hormones and stuff and how that influences the brain and then less so about looking at these other things. But Mm -hmm, I can mm -hmm. recommend to the readers, Dr. Jolene Brighton's book, Beyond the Pill. She talks a lot about what happens when you're transitioning off the pill and discusses what is known and not known about post birth control syndrome, which, you know, a lot of women experience. Women have this sort of trend. It's kind of like after you have a child, you know, like you have this sort of postpartum period. It's like post pill partum (laughs) period, you know, where your hormones are like not, I don't think they have quite figured everything out. And I hear that this, you know, this seems to be more common among women who are on the pill for a really long time, sort of uninterrupted. And so I would recommend that book. And also, I can say that there is not a ton of research in this general area. And again, for all of these reasons that we've been talking about, that we should all be very upset about as women. Mm. But yeah, I would definitely recommend that book to readers who are considering transitioning off the pill and how to manage that transition in ways that they can sort of troubleshoot what's going on in their bodies. Well, let me steer the conversation back to our brain. Can Mm -hmm. you share with our listeners, because I know this has a lot to do with the inspiration behind your research and dedication to this topic. What did you experience when you came off of birth control in terms of like brain power and your thoughts and feelings? 
Yeah. So, you know, I was on it for more than a decade of my life and almost consistently. I went off it right before I had both my kids and when I was breastfeeding them and all of that. But I was on it pretty straight through for a long time. And when I went off it, and it was about three months after the fact, I just noticed one day that recently I had been feeling more alive. Like I felt like I had sort of emerged out of this like two dimensional black and white drawing and like coming to like, and I felt like I had more energy. I was finding myself thinking about sex and like noticing, you know, men, including (laughs) my husband, thankfully. (laughs) I was going to say, how do you feel about that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, including him, because, you know, I wasn't noticing him either. I was listening to music again. I was exercising. I was, (laughs) and this is going to sound like a terrible stereotype of women, but it was like, I was interested in my appearance again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just like, I felt like I woke up. A sexual being. Yeah, I felt like a sexual being and I felt alive in a way and I had energy and I just felt more vibrant than I had in a really long time. And it really surprised me. I was really taken aback by it, which, you know, given my background as a psychologist who studies women and and I've studied hormones, you know, I really should have known that my pill was influencing what my brain was doing and the way I was experiencing the world. But I mean, it just I had a blind spot when it came to my pills. And that was what actually led me into the research is that I became really interested in, you know, why am I feeling so different? And what does research have to say about this? Is there actually any research out there about what the pill does to the brain? Mm -hmm. And when I went to the research literature, I was just like, absolutely shocked. Like, you know, we need more research. There's there's a lot of things that we still don't know, but we actually know quite, quite a bit. And it's just that women haven't been told about it. And wow. so I actually, as soon as I was reading all of this research that was out there, you know, I went and looked and said, is this information available? Like, did I just like not get the memo? And so I went and dug around like in the, you know, popular press and looking at books and the information is nowhere. And so I felt like, you know, somebody's got to get this information out of these hard to read research journals and get it into the hands of women. So that way they can be active participants in decisions about their birth control, you know, work with their doctors, knowing what their own individual life goals are and what the trade-offs are when it comes to the birth control pill. So that way they're the ones in the driver's seat with their health and with who they want to be. What we're told is that, like I have this memorized, really, you have an increased (laughs) risk of blood clots and You should probably avoid taking birth control pill if you have high blood pressure. But we're not given any information that I recall. I mean, maybe it's changed now. I mean, I'm definitely coming up on menopause. I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I do still get my period. But I do remember (laughs) going to my OBGYN and never hearing anything about weight gain, about how it would affect my mood, how it would affect my personality. Like I've heard you talk a lot about that. Like it literally can change a person's personality. So what do we need to know? We need to know all of those things, right? It can influence how hungry and sleepy you are. And then of course, influence your risk of weight gain because of those reasons. It can influence your sense of vibrancy. It can influence your ability to cope with stress. It can influence who you're attracted to. It can influence how much you desire sex, how much you might want to listen to music and do things to make yourself sort of sexy, like feeling like a sexual Mm. creature. I mean, there's all of these different ways that it can be 
influencing women and women should have all this information when they're making these decisions. Because like you said, I mean, the conversation that I was given was risk of, you know, stroke and pulmonary embolism. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like if it's not gonna, if it, you know, as long as I'm like not getting fat and I want to have sex or whatever, like I'm fine. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> right? it's like, these are the things, the things I cared about were totally shallow and superficial. I was 18 you know, when I went on it or 17 going on 18 when I went on it. And Mm -hmm. it was like, the last thing I was worried about was stroke and pulmonary embolism. And so, you know, but this is the information women are given is all of this, like really sort of mechanistic neck down sort of body stuff, but nobody really talking about what it does psychologically. And now, you know, we've come half a step forward where doctors will also include possibility of weight gain and possible mood effects. But we still we need to keep pushing the conversation, we need to like really talk about the full range of psychological effects. And so you know, this book is really going to hopefully empower women to have information about the types of psychological trade offs that they're making with the pill. And so that way, when they go into their doctor, they're armed with this information to make really good decisions about, you know, what, how they want to protect themselves from pregnancy. And then also if they do, you know, choose the pill as an option, how to strategize the type of pill that they're on to help maximize their mental health and who they are. Well, doctor, the million dollar question, I know you've been waiting for it. What option do I have other than abstinence? (laughs) What, what options do I have? You know, if I've decided for myself, I don't want to put my body through this. Or do I need to consider dealing with these consequences because the risk of getting pregnant at this point is just too high? What other options are there or aren't there? Right. No, this is like a really, this is like the important question. And I don't think any of us are in in a hurry to embrace abstinence. So we can just sort of take that one off the table and like know that we need something different. For some women, if you're at a time in your life when, you know, pregnancy prevention is absolutely necessary, the pill is sometimes, I think, still going to be some women's best option. It can be a good option. We know it's safe. I think that there, I mean, there's more than a hundred different formulations that are out there. And if women are strategizing with their doctors using, you know, some of the information in my book, I think that they can probably find one that's going to feel okay for them. That being said, if women want to do something non-hormonal, we do have a lot more options than we used to. There is the, of course, a non-hormonal copper IUD. And it used to be that doctors were really squeamish about giving this to girls who haven't had children yet, just because they were afraid that they were going to do something that would upset the cervix. But that sort of attitude is not necessarily, it's going away. I think that doctors are realizing it can be safely and effectively used in women who have not had children. I'm just fine. This, you know, does cause a local inflammatory response, which can also, you know, cause psychological issues. I've heard people who have had psychological, especially mood-related side effects with the copper IUD, which Mm. surprises them because it doesn't have hormones. But some people have an exaggerated inflammatory response. Absolutely. Um, And so copper IUD can be really great for a lot of women, but for some women, just as sort of the caveat, 
you know, there can be sort of other psychological issues that arise as the result of inflammatory activity. There is like sponges, there is like using a cycle tracking app and using condoms just during the fertile days, or even using sponges Mm -hmm. during Mm -hmm. fertile days. And you know, and and condoms, of course, are like the redheaded stepchild of um, of contraception. (laughs) Nobody likes them. But, you know, they really are. They're not as bad as they used to be. And they have the added benefit of protecting women and their partners from sexually transmitted infection. So, I mean, we've got some options, right? And there's diaphragms. That's also a possibility. But I think that some combination, you know, there's lots of different things that we can sort of try out, whether it's a non-hormonal IUD or trying out cycle tracking plus condoms, Mm -hmm. which I don't recommend for people who it's like absolutely critical that they don't get pregnant just because it's a little bit less fail safe than some of the other options. But especially, you know, like when we think about like teenage pregnancy, when you're a 17 year old girl, like, I don't know about you, but I was about as irresponsible as they come. And, you know, there was absolutely no way I could have been trusted to count my cycle days. And so for me, as I sort of think about my daughter getting older, because she's about to turn 13, Mm -hmm. and we're going to be having to have these issues soon. If she's sexually active, and she's in her teens, that probably the first thing that we would try as a copper IUD just because it's just Mm -hmm. as effective as the pill. It doesn't have hormones. And so I know that it wouldn't be influencing her brain development. And if that didn't work, then we would consider whether it makes sense to have her using things like condoms and sponges and diaphragms, or whether it might make sense in this specific context to try out one of the different hormonal contraceptives. The sort of takeaway is that the answer is going to differ for every individual woman. And having all of the information is like the first, like the best step in terms of moving forward. Dr. Sarah, armed with the knowledge that you have today, also knowing you have a daughter, hypothetically speaking, she's 13 years old and just has horrible acne. We know that the FDA has approved some birth control pills as a way to treat acne, like it's an acne medication of which the side effect is no babies. Right. Right. So your daughter comes to you and she's like, you know, mom, we've tried everything. We've changed my diet. I just I can't go to school looking like this anymore. Can I please try what the doctor's suggesting birth control medication? And I I know I'm asking you like for your personal situation, like this is your daughter and you're not in it. So please, Mm -hmm. before you answer, just know that we're taking that into consideration. This is for you and your daughter. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me. I would try something else first. Mm hmm. There are so many different things that we can try to, you know, improve the way that adolescent girls are sort of not only like the way that their skin appears, but also the way that they feel about it. And I I would really kind of try to exhaust those options first. I'm yeah, I mean, I'm a strong advocate of clean eating and stress management and getting a good night's sleep and sunshine and exercise. And, you know, some of these you know, more sort of integrative medicine types of approaches to issues. And so we would probably go down that pathway first. And I would probably work with somebody, work with our family doctor who takes the same approach and trying to find alternative means of doing it before going to hormones, just during this time when her brain is still developing, given that this isn't something as important as a fertility regulation. I love it. Where can we pick up your book? It is available on Amazon, and you can also find it on IndieBound or at any of your local bookstores. Well, Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for doing the research that you've been doing. Thank you for like 
creating a space where we can have this conversation. And I mean, really, I'd like to thank you for ruffling some feathers and saying like, it's not appropriate that we are prescribing this pill as a cure-all and that we don't have the research that we truly deserve to know long-term effects and how this affects the brain. So thank you for calling attention to this very important topic. Where can people connect with you and support your mission? Yeah, I would love to connect with your listeners. I am on social media and my handle is at Sarah with an H. So S-A-R-A-H. Sarah E. Hill, PhD is my handle. And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can also learn more about the research that we're doing in our lab and about the book and about sort of my mission to help improve the quality of people's lives, especially women's, Mm -hmm. on my website. And that is sarahehill.com. Well, thank you so much for being a guest here today. I appreciate you and I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. I appreciate you.